Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham Dhamman Sangham Namasam. Tonight we're missing the uh, presence of um, Lin Ann and, and Mayura. They're preparing for their wedding. So we want to offer the merit of our time together in uh, support of their. Uh, ongoing work together in union. Last time I was here, I talked a little bit about the five khandas, their impermanence, their insubstantiality, and I thought tonight I might bring that together with the way karma works, or what the connection is between the five khandas and karma. So when we look at these heaps, which is one translation for the word khanda. The Buddha identified five heaps that we could use as the categories for all things in this realm. All the things that we might consider to be ourself or belong to us. So anything that we might think is me or mine can be thrown into these five heaps. The image I have in my mind lately is like when you've worn all your clothes, all your clothes are dirty and you got to do laundry, and you start sorting. <laughs> Some people sort anyway. <laughs> so, these piles. And sometimes you don't know quite where to put the polyester maybe or something, but it may not matter because it doesn't run. It's kind of like that with the khandas. Some of them are a little hard to to separate, but the Buddha said you don't, you can't really separate. Say um, consciousness, mental formations, and perception. So the five, as you probably already know, are um, mental or material form. So that includes our own bodies and everything else that we can touch the carpet, the wood, the tray, everything that's got material form and feeling. And the Buddha described feeling in this regard as pleasant, painful, or neutral. And then sanya, which is perception or memory. And that's the part that actually identifies what we're experiencing, what we're seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, feeling. And then there's mental formations, which is everything of the more complex uh, mental processes. And consciousness, and consciousness that comes up from the uh, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind, contact something or experience an object. So these five 
all as as with all things, all of these are based on some conditions. That's how they come into being. And if we look at the chain of dependent origination, all five of these appear within the early part of the chain. If you if you look at where the Buddha laid out the chain of dependent origination with twelve links. These all arise in the first seven links. And this whole section of seven links is based on old kama. It's kama that's already been made. And it's in process. So if you look through those links, the first one is of ignorance. And the second one is sankara. So that's one of the khandas. Sankara, I think of sankara as kind of our unfinished business. It's the energy from our actions, from our, our it's the karma and the actions that put forth this energy that's not yet cooled. It's got some some push behind it still. It's got un, it's unfinished, it's unsettled. It's looking for something. It's on the move. And it can't exist without ignorance. So if there's a realization of the way things actually are, so awakening, full awakening, then that all of that just becomes cool. That's the end. No more coming into any state of being. But as long as that ignorance, some element of that, some level of that ignorance is there, then there is some level of sankara that can be supported. The way I look at this is there's sankara is existing, and then there needs to be something that the sankara can operate through. So what arises is mentality and materiality, and rupa and consciousness, vijnana, Actually, vinyana, namarupa, but they arise together, and they hold each other up. The Buddha said, as as two sheaths of wheat leaning against each other. Mm-hmm. So it's with those two components, body, mind, and consciousness, that were very much in the contents, that make it possible for sankara to have an expression, mm-hmm. and then. As soon as you have the body mind, you have the six sense bases. And now there is this potential for new contact. Because you get the the six senses and objects and consciousness. And those are the three ingredients you need for contact. So the eye and the form and the consciousness to take in what that mm-hmm. form is there. And again, all of this is, is kind of like it's already set in motion. And there's no way you can stop it. It just rolls. And so does the feeling that comes up when contact happens. 
And we experience this every day, this contact and feeling, contact and feeling, contact and feeling over and over and over again. The peace that feeling stands as a condition for is craving. And it's between these two that we have choice. This is, this is where we have some element of control. And it may not seem like we do in the beginning, because it can seem like the feeling that arises and the result, the, the, the reaction, are so closely tied together that there's no stopping it. I remember being in Thailand once at Wapananachat, and it was one of my first visits, maybe even my very first one. And the abbot there at that time was Ajahn Jayasara, and he was giving a talk, primarily to the monks, but the lay people who were staying in the monastery could be there also. And, and I was there, and, and he was talking about anger. And something had happened. I don't know what, but something had happened. <laughs> Somebody got angry. <laughs> And there was also some talk about language, so I think some language occurred. <laughs> but um, he said, it's volitional. Acting upon anger is volitional. It's not automatic. He said, there's a point at which you decide to go with it. And his talk was based on, you need to put a wedge of awareness between that feeling and that response. That's really the wedge of awareness that helps us change the outcome from the old comer to the newcomer. Right there. Right there at the feeling. So to train ourselves to be present with the feeling and develop strategies for working with what arises and develop techniques for being present with it and really investigating it and coming to an understanding of where it comes from. What is the ignorance underlying it that causes me to want to engage in greed, hatred, or delusion or act out of greed, or out of hatred, or out of delusion. To really work with it at that right there, before we develop craving, which is the next step. Now craving is interesting. We all know what it feels like. You could probably make a list off the top of your head of a dozen things you've craved in your life. And we all know that it's more than just a desire for something in the moment. It becomes a pattern. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that gave me a clue about this pattern was some study in the neuroscience area where they did these experiments with chimpanzees where they wire up their brains and watch the centers of the brains that became activated when they were doing certain experiments. And the experiment that they were having these monkeys do was to sit at a computer 
which is a great image for me. <laughs> and they would have shapes, different colored shapes, come on the screen. And if a certain shape with a certain color came on the screen and the monkey pressed the lever, he'd get a reward. Some juice. That's also an interesting word, isn't it? Get some juice out of it. <laughs> the monkeys would learn, of course, pretty quickly which colored shape would give the reward they had to press the lever for. So they watched the parts of the brain because different centers of the brain would be stimulated watching the shapes or getting the juice, right? It's different. That enjoyment of getting the juice lit up something else. And then they started to play with different possibilities. They decided, what happens if we don't give the monkey the juice? Well, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Before that, maybe, they started like opening the door of the room so that the monkey could go out and play instead of sit by the computer. And what they found was that the monkeys who hadn't really developed a craving would get up and run outside and play. Or they'd put food in the, in the room, and they'd get down and go eat the food. But the monkeys who developed a craving, even if the door was open, they'd still go after it. Yes, that action. Exactly. Or the food in the room. And the way they would see how this craving was developed was they would withhold the juice and then, or, or when they would give them the juice, you know, they knew which part of the brain would light up and then they started to see that was, as the craving developed, that part of the brain would light up before the juice would come. So this part of the brain is lighting up, expecting, if they're getting the, the experience of feeling before the juice comes, but there's this strong desire for the juice. And then there's this anger. They'd get angry and depressed, or depressed if they didn't get the juice with the right shape. Does it sound like anybody you know? <laughs> so it was, it was really interesting to read this, and, and they talked about the, this is craving. And it doesn't take long to develop that habit. I was, I was eating some ginger covered with dark chocolate a little while ago. And you know, the habit can come pretty fast. <laughs> you already want the next one. But this is the point where we have this choice. And this choice is to become conscious right now. Because the way the rest of the chain of dependent origination goes is the craving that is the support, the necessary condition for clinging. And the clinging means to becoming. Birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Now, something to reflect on is that there's a whole part of that where we don't have any choice either. Once you're born, you're going to die. You're very likely to experience sickness. 
and you'll certainly experience pain. Whether or not we experience sorrow, limitation, pain, grief, and despair, well, pain, yes, some of that despair can be mitigated or even eliminated by a practice. But wouldn't it be better to roll it back to feeling and craving and stop it there? So what teachers say, as, as far as my experience goes, is that there are really these two points where we can change our course. It's at the ignorance and this link between feeling and craving. And this is where we can change the direction of this karmic stream or calm it completely. Where it all goes cool. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> that's an inter- I think that's an interesting intersection between karma and the khandas. And to realize that the Buddha talked about these five khandas for the express purpose of showing us what we cling to. And to think of these things in terms of their, their clinging. And to know that this clinging can't exist without craving. And this craving doesn't exist without feeling. And our unskillful management of that feeling. <laughs> because feeling in and of itself doesn't have to lead to craving. Now there's one more element that I want to introduce, which is how joy affects this process. I'm experiencing more and more seeing these places where the Buddha talks about joy, some aspect of joy coming into the practice. And whether it's gladdening the heart in the Anapanasati practice, or it's the experience of piti, or you know, this joy. Or it's, it's really acknowledging any kind of um, progress that we're making on the path. And something that uh, I heard in a talk by Ajahn Punadama recently is that joy is a karma amplifier. So if we do things that are good, make offerings, be kind, you know, all the good things that we can do in life. If we do them with joy, it amplifies the merit. Because we're really engaged in them. Our heart's engaged. Not, not like a desire for some kind of benefit, you know, but the joy of giving, the joy of helping the joy of being virtuous. But he said that if you take delight in doing something bad, you harm someone and you take delight in it, that amplifies the bad karma. 
And I can really see that. Because our intention is so much behind that. Very different than if we accidentally do something hurtful. Or even if we do something hurtful out of our own pain. It's not good, but it's not as bad as... So joy is important. And where we bring it in, we can consciously bring it in. Remember that the Buddha talked about how to make offerings. Mm. With joy, with, with a real delight. Open heartedness. And to reflect on it later. And even remember it throughout our lifetime and remind ourselves of the good we've done. All different kinds of good. So I think I'd like to offer that for your reflection and I'd like to hear any comments or questions. You said that there are two places where you saw the thing. You wanted to hear this Well, stopping the, the progress, of turning the direction of the karma, breaking the chain of dependent origination and ignorance, I would say it, it's much more than mindfulness. Mindfulness is involved, but the whole eightfold path is involved. And what you really come to there is a complete knowledge and vision of the way things actually are. So it's awakening. Um, so it's, it's really important to practice with the whole path. So right view, right intention, and the virtues, and the rest of what goes into the sort of samadhi part. And then, of course, at the link between feeling and craving, awareness is essential. So mindfulness is very important. But so is right view, right intention. I find the whole of the Noble Eightfold Path in support of that. Right there. And what the process that we really need to employ is the first three Noble Truths that we're aware 
when we're feeling something that we're suffering, we aware of that suffering, that's the first noble truth, really getting this is suffering. Now a lot of times we're suffering and we don't know, we don't acknowledge. There's some ignorance there. We're not aware of it. We're not seeing it clearly. So we need to see it clearly, we need to understand it, which often comes through witnessing that experience in the body, how it presents itself in the body. And then the second noble truth to really understand the cause of that suffering and to abandon that. And a lot of times it's just described as clinging. But if that's all that we, you know, if we just use that as a mental kind of idea, it's not going to be enough to really understand the root uh, cause of that suffering. And then to experience the cessation. So that's some keys into the process that we need to employ around feeling. It all does come together. There is a relationship between what happens with ignorance and what happens with between feeling and craving. But it all comes together as the Noble Eightfold Path comes together. Mindfulness gets so much airtime these days that we think it covers everything. And it's, it's tremendous. Um, and it's applicable in all situations, really. But it needs, it needs more. The whole system the Buddha gave is a complete system, and it's, it's really powerful. craving and fear. So I was wondering if you could talk about that for a moment. The relationship of craving and fear. So, of course, if we've got a strong craving set up, there's likely to be fear if we can't get anymore. Or something that we have that we really cling to is going to be taken away. And that can be, you know, kinds of things where you say, of course, isn't it natural to be afraid of death or dying or loss of wealth or loss of loved ones or loss of livelihood or, you know, on and on. And it is natural for the normal worldling, for any animal. But this is where the wisdom of the Dhamma and being able to cultivate purity of heart comes in uh, so that we don't have to have fear about those things. First, acknowledging that everything's going to fall apart anyway. And it's in its process. (laughs) 
couple days ago I learned I have scoliosis. Today, a couple nights ago, I heard rats in the wall. They've, they've eaten through the, the wall in the garage, and now they're on the other side of my bookcase. <laughs> Today, a glass of water got spilled and doused my phone. <laughs> I mean, and I have a cold. Oh. Poor me. <laughs> this is normal. <laughs> This really is normal. <laughs> so, the more we, you know, continue to remind ourselves that everything's falling apart, nothing's sacred in this realm. <laughs> in that way, you know, it's nothing's going to escape it. I really like that sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of Nines, called the Powers, the Four Powers and the Five Fears that you never have to have again. Um, nine five. Mm-hmm. These powers are virtue and energy and wisdom, and then the, the one I never expected. The ability to sustain favorable relationships. <laughs> the Buddha was so practical. <laughs> so if you cultivate virtue, then you don't have to fear getting caught, being put down, having a bad reputation. If you cultivate Wisdom, you know what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, and then energy to do what's wholesome and not do what's unwholesome. And then sustaining favorable relationships. And then the Buddha said, you don't ever have to fear losing your livelihood. You don't have to fear feeling timid and afraid when you're among people. You don't have to fear getting a bad reputation. And because you're making good karma and not negative bad karma, you don't have to be afraid of death. And you don't have to be afraid of what happens after death. Well, that covers part of quite a bit of the fear section. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a kind of guess that if you get to that point, you're not going to be afraid of much. And actually, something we were talking about earlier during tea time is there's really only one thing to fear, and that's wrongdoing. It's the only thing we need to fear. So all the fear that's connected to craving is probably not really necessary, but it still comes up. So I think when the when the Buddha talked in the Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya about fear and dread and how he practiced with fear when he was an unenlightened bodhisattva, was that he would just, if, he, if the fear arose while he was sitting, he would just continue to sit until the fear passed away. Or if it was while he was standing, he would just stand until the fear passed away. Or if he was walking, he would continue walking back and forth until the fear passed away. Mm-hmm. Or lying down, he would just stay in that position. So there's an implication there that he already understood that this fear is impermanent. It's going to pass away. 
And probably also that he really didn't need to do anything about it. Because there's nothing really to fear. Except for what I'm doing. And if you're not doing anything wrong, it's okay. You can just be with the feeling until it passes, and then you gain some knowledge. I can be with this feeling. It's not going to take me down. It's not going to overwhelm me. So what? It will go away. And this reminds me of a story about Ajahn Chah. This was when Ajahn Chah was really trying to face fears. You may have heard this story before. And, um, but I always like it, so share it. He was really trying to face fears. And, and you may know that in, in Thai culture, and I'm sure other cultures too, but there's a particularly a, a fear of ghosts more so than we have in this culture because we just deny their existence. <laughs> I'm not sure that works, but anyhow. Fear of ghosts, and so he was afraid. Um, and he wanted to deal with this fear by going into places where there were ghosts, and he was practicing in, in such a place. And he had a tremendous amount of fear coming over him, and he, I think he was there several nights and he had a tremendous amount of fear coming over him and he meditated through that fear and he got to a place of knowing that there wasn't anything that a ghost could do to him. Mm -hmm. What can they do? They can kill my body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. It's okay. But they couldn't make him do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if that was actually explicitly part of the story, but that's how I see it. So he got to a place where he was just completely completely beyond this fear. And then it was morning, and he got up from meditation, and he walked outside. He had to, had to urinate, and he urinated blood. And he saw that and went, eh, if it's broke, it's broke. <laughs> and I can really appreciate that. You know, you get past the fear, and... <laughs> doesn't really matter. So, we all have this potential. We all have the potential to awaken. Whether it's this lifetime or it's a subsequent lifetime, doesn't really matter. The more good we do, the more we purify the mind, the happier we are, and the more fun it is. Anyway, since some definition of fun that I hope you can understand is fully wholesome. (laughs) And I want to encourage that. I think that that's where we need to keep our mind. That we do have choices. And when we we know where to put our attention and how to evaluate what's wholesome and unwholesome, and we pull our attention away from those things that are carrying us down, Put it on what brings us up, what purifies the mind. Then we're making progress. And we never know when the other shoe is going to drop and we just know something important. And when that happens, be very aware of what it feels like. That feeling. We carry a memory of feeling even beyond our intellectual memory. And really, really log what that feeling is and be able to come back to it again and again.
think we have time for one more question or comment. Of course. So you have rats on the other side of What do you do with rats on the other side of your bookcase? How do you cope with it emotionally? Oh. Well, they've got to live too. I mean, you know. Um, we got a live trap. We're hoping to relocate them. <laughs> there is this chant, you know, we, we actually haven't done the chant, we, we need to though, there's a chant to, you know, like, may you be well, may you be happy, and may you be somewhere else. <laughs> Not you. It's okay. <laughs> so yeah, we'd rather they take up residence elsewhere. We're kind of hoping they don't decide to gnaw through this side of the wall, mm-hmm. but who knows, they might be having a, having a a dance in the kitchen right now. You never know. <laughs> we'll see. But that's how you how you cope with it. It's it's okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a theory I would I would entertain. You know because. Um, I mean, I don't know, but in in Chinese medicine, fear is related to the kidneys, mm-hmm. and it could very well be that that, that is related. I, mean, I never heard what happened after that. <laughs> for him, it wasn't the point. It wasn't the point. I think I can tell one more story. Ajahn Jayasaro talked about a movie that he watched when he was a boy that made a big impression on him. And I'll, I'll try to get the details close enough so that we can all understand why it was an important thing for him. In this film, it was about um, world, it was set in World War II, and you know, Ajahn Jayasaro is um, from England. This was uh, like the British intelligence agency and you know, working with the, what was going on in World War II, and they they had this one member of their of their agency that was kind of this bumbling idiot. He just did all kinds of things wrong, and they had this plan that they were gonna be able to pull something off without the Germans knowing, because they were gonna tell this guy information, but it was the wrong information. It'd be a decoy but he didn't know it was wrong information, and they'd send him out on some mission that would get him captured. And then, of course, he would crack if they torture him, because he's the, you know, the guy who does everything wrong, he can't hold up. So then the Germans would get the wrong information, and then their real operation would be safe. That was the plan. So this guy went out, he got captured, and he was so determined that he took every bit of torture without revealing the plan. And he was in this camp and all of this stuff happened to him. And when he, he got released and went back home, 
the woman who set him up, she was an agent. She met with him and she told him she was so sorry. They never thought he would be able to stand up to that. And his response was, it doesn't matter. His experience through that gave him so much strength and clarity of who he was. And he was not at all angry or upset. It was like, it doesn't matter. And I, and I think Ajahn Jayasaro's point was, you know, we, we can go through so much. It's coming out on the other side with a sense of our own dignity, of our own, you know, really understanding much more about nature, however you want to put it. That it's like the trouble we go through. Let me put it this way. The Buddha based his whole teaching on suffering on dukkha. He said, I teach about dukkha and the end of dukkha. And the dukkha that we go through really isn't the point. It's where we get to as a result. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.